0: with thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfy, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. We're doing a live podcast recording this evening. So we are in Bailey's HQ. Bailey's are, of course, our wonderful sponsors. And I've got a wonderful audience in front of me. You know what? If you want to laugh, if you want to cheer throughout, it's lovely to hear you. So go for it. Don't be shy. So for the podcast, can you give me a
1: whoop? Woo!
0: Louise Minchin presented BBC Breakfast for almost 20 years, lighting up TV screens across the nation and negotiating that delicate balance of being both someone who can ask difficult questions to those in power and someone you'd actually want to have breakfast with. (laughs) In 2021, she decided to finally give herself a lie in. Though hasn't exactly slowed down. She's a keen and incredibly successful triathlete and fitness ambassador, presenter of the Push Your Peak Endurance podcast, and is the chair of this year's Women's Prize judging panel. Plus, she's written two books Dare to Try, following her journey from the BBC breakfast sofa to Team GB triathlete, and her new book. Fearless Adventures with Extraordinary Women, which is published at the end of May. Welcome to this very
1: special live podcast recording, Louise. Oh, Vic, thank you so much. And what a pleasure to be here. And what a great whoop as well. She hadn't even warmed them up and they just whooped, didn't they? And they'll whoop again. (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. Um, I've listened to the podcast and gosh, you've had some illustrious guests, so I kind of feel under pressure. And also, obviously, I normally sit in the seat that you're sitting in and ask the questions. So for me, it's like, okay.
0: But you've come so prepared. You've got your books. You've got your own book. You were just saying before, this is a proof. And you were saying to everyone in the audience, careful, there's a couple of typos. Because it's not quite there yet. It's not ready yet.
1: I did the audible um, last week of Fearless. And, you know, you go into the booth and you think, this is great. And then you come to the page 10, you're like, oh, no, there's a typo. So that typo's gone, and there are a few others as well. But you just... Anyway, it's it's a really exciting time, but also, you know, you, just, you want to be everything to be perfect. Yeah. And uh, hopefully it will be. The Audible book is... I've corrected all the typos <laughs> in that one. Well, you
0: notice when you're reading in that way, yeah. when you're reading aloud, you kind of consume it and put it back out into
1: the world in a different way. But also, I suppose that thing about reading out loud, and you'll do this as well. Like, there would be mistakes, for example, on, on autocue when I was on BBC Breakfast, but your brain just makes them right and I remember there was the T missing off train which is kind of quite a crucial T isn't it the rain has done yeah changes (laughs) context um and your brain is so you know your brain works so fast that my brain put the T on train and there was one one really um alarming moment and it kind of gives me sweaty hands even thinking about it where um, we're going it's sort of I think it was six o'clock maybe it was it would be seven o'clock in the morning and I'll know why I know that time because Oh, we're just going to the headlines and you've got that countdown and you've got you know the clock that you probably heard on BBC Breakfast. is make a special sound and the boom-booms, doesn't it? We're just ahead of the boom-booms. And um, my editor comes over talkback, so he speaks into my ear. We're live, right? He goes, Louise, the headline's wrong. <laughs> Does he tell you which headline? Thank you very okay. much, no. So you, do, you, you know there's a mistake, but just not I, where? I, I, I don't know which headline, and there were five. Or what was was wrong? (laughs) Which one was it? Did you work it out? Yes. Because it was obviously, it was seven o'clock and that's why it's key because I would have read the headline correctly at six o'clock. So when it was wrong, and I can't quite remember because I think my brain sort of, I have a brilliant delete button in my brain when things are bad, but I I fixed it. I fixed it. So your brain does things that if you told me that I would be able to do that, I go, No. But yeah, a brain is cleverer than my brain is cleverer than I am. Does that make sense? No.
0: <laughs> it actually really does, does make sense. It? it really does. I really get you. I, I mean I, I know that early shift and I know what yeah. it can do to oh, your brain as well. Um, and personally my reading habits really changed when I moved from doing a breakfast show to now doing a drive time show and just being less of a shell of a woman. Like just right. having a little bit more energy. Talk me through your your reading habits over those years and to gosh
1: um so i will we'll come to i was i love reading i'm a complete bookworm voracious reader when i was a child and then bbc breakfast came along and i'm reading for work so i would get up at 3:40 in the morning and i'd get a pay you know maybe 40 pages a4 of briefs so 12 different interviews all to be read you know before six o'clock in the morning And I became very... I didn't realise until kind of a couple of years in when I went on holiday and read a book on holiday. I became very fast, very, very fast reader. And I remember going on holiday and reading something in like one day. I was like, well, I finished that book. That's so disappointing. And I didn't realise that I'd actually speed it up. And what I found then was I, I really could only finish books when I was on holiday because I ran out of time. You know, you talk about being the shell of the person. I was always you know catching up with the news or catching up with articles or and then i had this growing pile because i was really lucky i would get to interview incredible authors like kate moss for example that's what, how i met her that's how i became chair of the oh, women's please. prize because okay. i interviewed her on bbc breakfast and i had this sort of growing pile of the books that i'd get and of course i'd only be given the book maybe 4 days before the interview so i would run out of time to read the whole book and this pile of books there was one pile of the books i didn't want to finish and there was a pile of books that I really wanted to finish and it just kept growing and then eventually I'd have to like move it out or it would really depress me by like go all those really good books but I haven't got time. So I've now got time and it's been a fantastic to be able to read. And being able to read um, as chair of the judges for the Women's Prize for
0: Fiction, that this is a whole other ball game when it comes to speed reading because how many did you you have about 70 I think we got to
1: 75 because I think because of Covid there may have been more you know people were writing a lot during Covid weren't they so um, 75 I think was probably more or less how many I read And that's just your allocation. That's just my allocation.
0: You get this big box and it just arrives in the post. This massive box. I lived in this tiny little flat when it arrived and those books had to stay in that box. I didn't have enough shelf space for it. And that is all of the allocation. So there's maybe like a hundred. Yeah, mine
1: arrived in in sort of bits actually. But then I forgot one box. I was like, oh, I've done so well. And I went upstairs and I was like, oh, there's a whole nother box with 20 books in it or something. And then I I did did have... because I, I spoke to somebody, and I said, you know, what, what about this? They said, the first thing said, have you got space in your house? It's a crucial question. <laughs> it is a crucial question. I laughed at it at first, but no. No. And luckily, I, just, I just, we'd just done this room where we put bookshelves in and they were empty. So I put them all in the bookshelves and I colour-coded them because <laughs> I'm... I really Nope, because okay. I did the same.
0: Did you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it wasn't colour, it was um it was, uh, was it height so was it, so so it high. At first it was height and then it became red, not red, yeses Oh no, yeah, red. yeah. yeah. The...
1: Exactly, exactly. So I had the those have been those have been red, those are I read some, but whatever. But yeah, all these different coding systems. If anybody moved my books, they would be like, don't do that, it's a really sophisticated coding <laughs> system that only I know about.
0: Definitely. But it was amazing. How have you found delving into so many worlds? Because, I mean, we all have genres that we prefer, mm. that we don't like to engage with as much, but, but you, you're you thrown into this world of just reading everything.
1: I just absolutely loved it because, I'm, and I can see some of the books are over there behind us on the bar. Look at that. Beautiful. The
0: long list is out.
1: I, I loved it because exactly that. It made me read things that I wouldn't necessarily have chosen, would never occur to me have picked up or whatever it was about the books, you know, I I wouldn't have chosen some of them. And they have been absolutely, they've opened my eyes, they've moved me. I've cried quite a lot. I've laughed. They've been utterly brilliant. And I think that's an incredible experience to be able to just be made to do it in some ways. And I I think it will change me forever, my reading habits, actually. I'll probably read the long list every year now. (laughs) it's a beautiful long list everybody um and there are some incredible books on there and they're really diverse and that's what hopefully every long list is like so I will definitely go and look at that next year I always think it's the whole point of the long list because it's validation for
0: books that you maybe wouldn't have picked Mm -hmm. up in the shop but you think okay this must be good it's been chosen let me have a look let me see yeah and then you do and it opens up something that you can come to love as mm-hmm. well. Remember the year I judged it and um, Piranesi, which one, for the first 50 pages, I was just going, not for me, not <laughs> for me, pages. no way. And then bam, wow. I was in and I was utterly transported. Yeah. I was obsessed. And now I love that fantastical kind of literature that usually wouldn't have even stopped. Oh, you see, I
1: would have gone in on fantastical mm. there's other things I would have chosen not to read so
0: <laughs> and that's what I love about it and we've talked a little bit about your reading habits as an adult but let's mm-hmm. talk about your first book Shelfie book is taking us all the way back to childhood and it is Island of Adventure by Enid Blyton. This is the first in Blyton's adventure series and it was first published in 1944 it follows the story of four children and their parrot kiki as they bravely set sail to the ominously titled isle of doom a small island where they came across some sinister criminal activity mm. tell me about this book and when you read it
1: um, i've got the book here oh wow yeah when did you get this well it's it's my dad's it's it's beautiful and and somebody just pointed out to me it is a first edition <laughs> but it's been drawn on I sure. feel not, it makes it not more by valuable. Me. Not by me. So, this is, um, this is my dad's book, and that's his name, Pat Grayson, and that's when he was given it in 1947. And then it was given to this is my cousin, my first cousin, who I'm blaming for the aeroplane which has been drawn on it because he then went and joined the army, and I'm sure that I just know, I just know that would have been him. Um, and, then, and then given to me, and my, I must have had I mean, I'm, I don't know when my dad gave it back to me. And I know you know we, we have reread it today, and there are things in here which are uncomfortable to read. let's be perfectly honest by Enid Blyton. but for me, this first of all, the fact that that came through my dad and through my cousin is really special, special. and it for me, it just gave me a love of reading and a love of adventure and i wasn't I didn't like her other books actually it was the, the adventure stories were the ones for me because it was just that kind of you know the grown-ups were out the room and they went and did this crazy things that they weren't allowed to do and for me that was sort of a little bit like how i wanted my childhood to be to be on that boat going to the island and doing scary stuff you spent
0: your early life in hong kong yes was your childhood full of adventures i guess it was Yeah, yeah
1: no i guess it probably was i mean i left when i was four or five so but you have sort of fleeting memories and family legend has that I could actually swim before I could walk, because my mum and dad would sort of, like, throw me into... <laughs> it sounds really irresponsible, doesn't it? it? Just throw me into swimming pools or into the sea, and I completely... I was just like a fish. I loved, loved, loved swimming. And I remember one... Uh, the one thing I do, do remember, and I think it is a real memory, was we lived on a tower block, um, like, really high up on a tower block, like, 15th or 16th floor, um, and there was a typhoon, and, it, and the blocks were made to sway with the wind because otherwise they would fall, and we, I do remember being in the bath and the bath water actually moving. I think that's a real memory. But yeah, I guess maybe that has fed through my whole life and I'm still a really passionate swimmer. So that would come from there. And you were in
0: Hong Kong because your father was
1: a British army major. Yeah, yeah he was, of oh you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. Well, well,
0: what was it like growing up in a military family? Because you, you mentioned um, your cousin as well. Then. Yeah,
1: so he left shortly after. I think he left when I was about eight or something. So I do have memories of him being all dressed up you know in his uniform and being really smart and and all the rest of it and actually you know it's a really important part of my family history actually because not only was my father in the he was in the Irish Guards uh, so was my grandfather so he would followed in my in his father's footsteps and then my brother was as well I mean I don't quite know why I didn't do it because I would be I would have loved it I would have loved the kind of you know, being part of a team and kind of being pushed, I suppose, in some ways. So it runs through our family as a strong theme, actually. My father, my grandfather, my brother very proud of it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the plane that's been drawn. Uh, yeah, that, that yeah. is definitely my cousin. I mean, it, <laughs>
1: he's, not, he's not an artist, yeah. is
0: he? Oh, I, I can tell it was a fighter jet straight away. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> but you said that this book has been passed down. Yeah, and um, I think that's important.
1: My my parents, they read to me when I was a child. I remember that very, very vid- vividly. And I've read to my children. And then hopefully, you know, that p- gets passed down generations. And I love books that have been given to me. We'll talk about one later. The Salt Path, given to me by a friend. I just think... And, you know, for example, with the long list, there are books that I'm giving to people because I'm like, you need this in your life. I just think it's a really precious thing to do. I must have got this off my dad a few years ago, but I think I've got four of them or something. It does feel so special. I like the sound that it makes, even when yeah. you touch the cover. I wish that we read books in a different way. I wish that when you read books, you kind of wrote books notes in it, do you see what I mean? Because I'd love to know you know, when oh my gosh, look at the underline bits. Well <laughs> oh, it turns out it has been written in. Yeah, yeah, it has been written in. But also, you know, you can tell when look, when the when it's been folded down and that's obviously been folded down twice, you know, that book has been it's been places, hasn't it? There's a
0: story as well behind every little bit of page that's been folded out. I remember my yeah. mum gave me her copy from her O levels of To Kill a Mockingbird, and it still had all
1: of her notes oh, on it. Oh, did it? You
0: said, I'd love that. And I felt like I learned more about my mum through those notes that she had left as a 14, 15, 16 year old.
1: I think it's got bloodstains on it. Look. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? that's you know, blood or sh- or possibly
0: chocolate
1: i don't know i mean knowing me i have probably fallen over just, i don't know
0: and when you when you give a book to someone because you feel like it could mean something to them yeah. it could be special to them it could teach them something it could, it could it could be an escape that they need that says a lot more about your relationship yeah. than anything else it's a really precious thing
1: um i know i mean i know that dad, my both my mum and dad would have read that to me and i just you know it's yeah it's
0: a really special thing and i something i'll never forget well, Thank you to them. We touched on this very briefly, but Blyton has been the source of some controversy in recent years. How do we reconcile the writer and the work? Does it change how you read a book? Now, you said you
1: read it just today. I read it today. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. I think it does. And of course, you you know, I'm, I'm reading it with 21st century eyes and she wrote it in 1944. So, you know, and there has been talk, hasn't there, of, them, of Hachette actually going back to rewrite it, but I don't think they're going to. Mm-hmm. I think I might have read it a little bit with my children actually but we never read them so I think maybe you know maybe that's where it needs to be it's in my memory and, and maybe that perhaps where it needs to be I'm not sure I mean, it's really it's hard, hard. Isn't it? it's yeah. really hard but you definitely I mean I read it today and I was like okay mm. I'm not comfortable with this and I'm not sure you know she would she wouldn't write it now I'm sure Do you sort of mean the same goes for so many art forms you
0: know yeah. film television yeah. Um, do we remake all those shows? Do we leave them where they.
1: And re- will in 50 years' time or 25 years' time, you know, our future generations, my children's children, look back and go, oh, I can't believe they wrote that. They're
0: like, Grandma, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, I just, I mean, for example, if you look at one of, the, one of the things, and I know I can't pick a favourite or anything, it's not a favourite, I'm just mentioning it, uh, from the Women's <laughs> Prize. If you look at Pod and the way humans treat the ocean and animals in the ocean and i think it's a real game changer that book and it's really deeply shocking actually but in a kind of like call to action way so you know you can see how things change and change is a good thing it is a good thing so maybe in 25 years time somebody look at my book and go oh my goodness she did what a triathlon
0: (laughs) it's time to talk about your second book shaffey book which is The House of Spirits by Isabel Agende. Originally published in Spanish in 1982, this multi-generational family saga explores the political and social upheavals of post-colonial Chile through a magical (coughs) realist lens. It was Isabel's debut novel and started life as a letter to a hundred-year-old dying grandfather. Although it's now considered a literary masterpiece and translated into over 20 languages, it was
1: initially rejected by multiple publishers. What do you love about it? So I would call it, as you probably would, La Casa de los Espíritus. Okay. (laughs) Um, So the reason I read this book was because I went to St. Andrews University and I studied Spanish and I was really bad at Spanish when I was at university because I didn't turn up for lectures which is probably, I mean, that's a bit of an admission. But, and I have told my children this, right, but they just, luckily they're not as naughty as I am, or was. Um, so, um, And I studied Spanish, and I was very lucky. I got an opportunity to go and live in Latin America for a year, actually, in Buenos Aires for a year. There was a scholarship um, which had been offered by a company in Glasgow for one student. It was an it, it was a chain, exchange student, so I was going to go and live in Buenos Aires, and then somebody from Buenos Aires was going to come and live in Glasgow, who got the better deal? <laughs> he did, obviously. Um, anyway, so I so I was really lucky, and I went out to uh, Buenos Aires, and the key to me not turning up for lectures was I turned up in Argentina. I mean, if I'd gone to lectures, I would have learned a very Castilian, so a very Spanish, European Spanish, right? Um, Argentinian is, I mean... Virtually different language, it's isn't like
0: it? It's like Spanish with an Italian accent. Yeah. Like, <laughs> che boludo, ciao bella. No tenía idea que hablaba así. I used to live in Buenos Aires as well on my year abroad studying Spanish. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I should have
1: known this. I feel terribly ignorant. No, no. I was When How I read this, I was like, I'm obsessed. Yes, we have the same. Yeah. <laughs> so so you will have been through a similar experience yeah, yeah. whereby I landed in uh, like 3 a.m. in the morning. I got delivered to, uh, again, It was a, it was a tower block. On the seventeenth floor again, and literally the next day I started my job. My job was in, in a factory, which was actually way out of Buenos Aires, so oh. I used to have to go and get a bus, and it was quite complicated to get to. And I arrived there, and they literally said to me, "Right, okay, Louise, Luisa. <laughs> they could never say my name, Louise. They thought I was a boy. So, Luisa, what would you like to speak? Would you like to speak English or Spanish?" And I looked at them, and I was like, "Oh gosh!" I mean, I hardly understood that they said that to me. By the way. I was like, well, I've travelled 7,000 miles to learn Spanish, so let's say Spanish. So I said Spanish. Um, and then the other thing they said to me, um, would you like to be paid in dollars or australis? Oh, at what point? At what okay. point? Very good question. Okay. So I went, gosh, I'm not really sure what australis are. I think that's your currency. But dollars? It was at a point when they had hyperinflation. Yeah, when it was pegged to the peso. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was hyperinflation and it was an extraordinarily terrifying time for them to live through because literally I would go to the supermarket and I'd let's say it cost me my whole shop would cost me 20 pounds one week and I'd go to the supermarket so 20 australis one week I'm just making up the figures right the next week I'd go in and it would same shop 45 next week 100 it was just utterly destabilizing and terrifying for people and because I was being paid you know technical issue by Glasgow I was on a hundred dollars a month, and a hundred dollars a month just got more and more valuable. It was utterly unbelievable. And if you were, um, if your, uh, if your surname began with A in the alphabet, you would get paid first, and you'd take your Australis, and you would run to the exchange and change your money into dollars as quickly as you could. And of course, people at lower down the alphabet got a worse exchange rate. I mean, it was. I mean, I don't know what it was like I when remember. you were there, but it was. It was really. You know, I was a very lucky person, and to see this happening was just very disturbing, actually.
0: I found it fascinating, A, how young democracy was Mm -hmm. and how um, suspicious people were of, of any sort of power. And then, B, it was, yeah, this hyperinflation... Every menu was written in yeah. a marker that you could rub away because it would change. Yeah. The price of everything yeah. would change every single day. And people were keeping their money under their bed. They weren't mm-hmm. trusting the banks. How could you trust the and banks? They took away all the savings when mm-hmm. I was there. They just took all their savings. Gone. And it stripped away this entire middle class, which is why when they were protesting in the Place de Major, it was women with their, their, their pots and pans to say, This is what we used yeah. to be and look at us now. Like, what's happening? It was confusing what did you take away from that time? Um, We haven't talked about the book, sorry we haven't talked about the
1: book. (laughs) So the book, so so being not very good at Spanish I was like right okay first of all I I was sort of dropped in and immersed in this world where I remember just literally being inundated with this noise that I could kind of get one word out of ten and then I I basically learnt by sitting down with a hundred years of solitude with a dictionary which is a a dense book, isn't it? Uh, it'll take you a while. Yeah, it'll with, with while a, a dictionary, <laughs> and I read it from literally the, all the pages, and I remember watching telenovelas, so soap operas. They are, I mean, they're so brilliant. Are <laughs> oh, they brilliant? It's so brilliant. There's was one about a nun. Did you watch that one? You probably. I mean, you were there years know. after I I mean,
0: there was religion came into them a lot. A lot of religion, a lot of sex combined.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was the general vibe. <laughs> um, so, so I, so that's how I started, and then I think I. And then I spent a lot of time uh, travelling actually in Chile, and I really fell in love with the with the literature and with the language, particularly mm-hmm. in Chile actually, because it seemed to me that every Chileno that you met, um, you'd literally say, hello, they say, what is your name, i say Louise. what Luisa, um, and then we'd, they'd go, do you believe in God? Yeah. They were just awful, lot- they were so sort of philosophical and not 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 any kind of you know like did I believe in the existence of God you know what I mean just like and I loved I just loved them and then I met then I met I didn't meet Isabella Allende I met her because I read her book and I just loved it and I loved I mean you I don't think you are probably a fan of magic realism are you if, you can I just say, I,
0: I, <laughs> when I first arrived at uni studying Spanish, I t- I was so stupid. I felt so stupid. I went to Cambridge and I remember thinking like, what were they thinking letting me in? I shouldn't be. I don't know anything. You probably and, went to
1: lectures though.
0: But I, I was trying. <laughs> I was honestly trying. I couldn't believe it when all these Eton boys would put their hand up and they didn't even know the answer, but they had that confidence. Ooh, and I found myself shrinking gosh. and shrinking and shrinking. And I read Hundred Years of Solitude*, and I remembered why I loved Spanish. Okay, so it reminded me.
1: Okay, so I just fell in love yeah. with the with the Latin American literature, and I came back and I was given this sort of choice at uni where I, if I wanted to keep studying Latin American literature, I had to give up international relations, and because it was otherwise, it was going to be Cervantes, and I was no, I'm no. out. I want no. I want the magic realism. <laughs> Um, and I want all that colour and just excitement and wonderful ideas so I gave up international relations to carry on with with Latin American literature and I I just adored it and then I came back and I was the bottom of the class when I left and I came back and they were just like did you have some sort of, you know, conversion? I mean, who is who is this person who speaks bilingual Spanish and is completely obsessed by the literature? They had, they just couldn't get their heads. My professors couldn't understand the change in me. It changed me forever. So talk me through the magic of the magical realism. How did it affect you? What happened? I, I think it just got in my head. I started dreaming in it. And I probably started, you know... It's dreaming in Spanish as well uh, you know it was kind of like a, a, an osmosis of both of them the Ma- magic realism made me understand the language and um, and I love the char- the characters in um, in the House of Spirits you know they're just the brilliantly ethereal and you know there's so much deep meaning as well but in this kind of told in this sort of fables and wondrous I just
0: yeah I love it it's my one of my favorite genres I ended up doing the same I came back and specialized that was that was the so route I great. wanted to take in yeah in Latin American literature, specifically medical realism. I just absolutely love it. So I'm glad we got to have
1: this chat. She's utterly unbelievable. And that was her first novel, which was just brilliant. I mean, I have read it. I've been reading, as you can see, I've been reading it in the bath again, but not in Spanish. Could you still read it in Spanish? I wouldn't,
0: because yeah. it wouldn't relax me, I don't think, in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny, because when you read I mean, this is the whole thing about reading in translation, is there is also a real benefit to reading in Spanish. And, yeah. and those words that are so evocative and so colourful and so sumptuous fizzing on the page in the way that they're supposed um, to. And words that I are,
1: don't think can be translated. They can't be.
0: It's more what they um, embody like those yeah. words aren't just words they their mean feelings. their feelings they mean <laughs> things in Spanish. Right everybody are you, you going to go and learn Spanish?
1: <laughs> Please do.
0: Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Let's talk about your third book, which is Room, by Emma Donoghue. Inspired by the harrowing case of Joseph Fritzl, this breakout novel is told from the perspective of five-year-old Jack, who's being held captive in a small room, along with his mother, Ma. The first half takes place entirely within the 12-foot square prison they're living in, with the second half set outside as the pair try to navigate a new world of freedom. It is a story of survival against the odds and the power of maternal love. I mean, it's extraordinary. What was it that stood out to you about this book?
1: I think you had it with maternal love. I wasn't a mum when I read it. Okay. And I don't think being a mum was something that was kind of really I, in any way <laughs> actually thought about on any sort of deep level. But it just has this, it explained to me the visceral feeling that you have as a mum towards your children and the deep love I mean and affection and that kind of protection you want to put you know what she did in that room was just extraordinary create this kind of light you know make him safe make him learn make him feel loved make him you know feel extraordinary in this tiny space and I just looking back now as a mum I think it just kind of made me sort of sit up and go wow you know that really is something that I've never understood, and I didn't. I didn't really. I, going back now again, um, have never really understood until I became a mum how kind of deep that is, and the bond is just—it's sort of unexplainable. And we have we have a joke about it in my family actually, whereby um, we've got a dog called Ruby, and my dog, my, sec, my younger daughter, called Scarlet. She goes, "Mum, is it that you love me as much as I love Ruby?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you do get it. She does get it." but it's that whatever happens forever enduring you know I would do anything for them and I think that's the thing about Room is it for me there's not another book that is a just a beautiful explanation of what maternal love is I just it's gonna make me very emotional actually um but I had no idea when I read it what do you think it is about this
0: one because you know these mother-child relationships are a a well-mined yeah. topic in yeah. literature, in so many of the, the books that we read. But what was it about this depiction that really?
1: I think nice? it's because it's told from his yes. point of view. That's very, you know, he's only five, isn't he, or later yeah. six, isn't he? I think because it, it leaves you sort of guessing. Do you sort of mean he leads you down this path, but it's so much of it is unsaid. That that's kind of the way I see it. I think. But it's just it's for me it's just beautiful, It's beautifully written. It's beautifully put together. Um, and then, you know, I've, you know I'm a news reader. I've got so many bad news stories in my head. and to sort of write that really traumatic story in such a meaningful way is a very just a clever thing to do. I am always really interested
0: actually with um, news anchors yourself being an anchor a journalist. How challenging is it to report on, to absorb, these kind of stories. How's it been over the years? I mean, this is inspired by the horrifying story of, yeah. of Joseph Fritzl. Um, I think
1: I, if I if I wasn't emotionally involved in the stories, then I don't think I would be doing the job properly in some ways. Because I think you need to be able to have empathy in order to wake up in the morning and tell all of you who are watching or who or you are listening, you know, something terrible. If I don't have empathy, then that's wrong in my view. There are stories, though, that my husband's really good at helping, particularly with this particular story, helping me through it, because I like books because they've got endings. Yeah? Yes. I read because I like to know what happens. There's resolution. Yeah? There's normally, normally, there's... Not all books give you that, do they? Of course they don't. But there's resolution, isn't there? And there's a meaning behind it and all the rest of it. And so... I think that's why I kind of went into journalism in the first place because I was like why what who you know what happens next and it's the stories where we don't know what's happened next that I particularly find really difficult to leave behind and Madeleine McCann being one of them um, I was there in the newsroom that day that she went missing and I still see it now sitting you know in this tiny room and you know the gray sofas and all the rest of it and they were going this girl this child's gone missing and you know, what do we put it in the news bulletin? Which obviously we did. And I, I have children of a similar age, actually. And it was just for me, it's stories without ending that I find find really difficult. And and that's that's human, and of course it is because we don't know what's happened to that little girl, and you know their family. It's been the destroyer of so much of their hope and hope for the future, hasn't it? So, and then there, there's another one as well where it was the Manchester bombing and that happened Um, you know I moved up to Chester with Salford to Salford to Media City with my children etc had Mia my eldest not been doing GCSEs that month we would have been there she kept saying can I go to the Ariana Grande concert and I was like no you can't because you're doing your GCSEs but I haven't got one that day I was like you still can't so we would have been there so it felt very much in our kind of backyard and you know uh, you know, I would have been the person who'd been standing, waiting, because I would have been like, come on, we need to go, I've got to get to work, or whatever it is. So that felt very, very, very difficult as well. And I had to be there in the morning, you know, knowing that something horrific had happened behind me. But again, telling the audience gently that, you know, when I know there are children waking up listening to that, and, and somehow that's so not knowing again, which is difficult, isn't it? We didn't know what, you know, how many people have been killed. And to be able to tell the audience that gently is by... The thing I took most seriously, I think, to tell, you know, to tell people, kind of hold people's hands while terrible things are happening that are unexplainable. And when you go home from a day at work where you've had to
0: tell people terrible things yeah. that are unexplainable and you have two children, how oh, do you explain gosh, to them that terrible things time. have happened that are unexplainable?
1: I don't know. I don't even know how I've done that. I don't know. I'd probably in the same way. I think because of what I do or did they are quite robust you know they are uh, so yeah I just guess in the same way really it
0: feels like gently. something yeah gently that well this is something that re- resonates in this in this yeah. book because in spite of the darkness in spite of the horror
1: there is this
0: power and this love and that to is read, the light. To tell
1: a different story yeah. That's it, isn't it, in the book? Do you see what I mean? There she is, and she makes up this extraordinarily big world for them. Just so much horror going on, and she just decides to tell him a different story, which, again, is to her cost when she comes out, actually, isn't it? But it's, yeah, it's an extraordinary thing.
0: Well, on that note, we move on to your fourth book which is The Beasts of Clawstone Castle. It's a bit of a gear change here. <laughs> have you read this one? Well, this this is from a long time ago. And I've, I, I, I have memories oh, of it. You've read it? I think time. so. I think it was read to yes, me? Yes, like it was read, read to... to you. Yeah. This is by Eva Ibbotson, Um another book about a children's school holiday adventure. Yeah. This time, our protagonists, two children called Madeline and Rolo, enlist the help of some friendly ghosts while staying in a Scottish castle. And lots of twists and turns follow on the surface. It is a humorous fantasy story for kids, but it does also raise interesting issues around animal experimentation, cosmetic surgery and the destruction of the natural world.
1: Which are big issues. Which
0: are big issues. When you read it, were you aware of them? Were you aware what's happening? Or were you just, you know, were you a child? No, either? so
1: I read it to slash with Scarlet. Right, okay. Okay, so I'd not read it before. And we read it, so she's now 18, so we must have read it when she was about eight. And it may have been, maybe it was a school thing, or maybe we just picked it up. Uh, we both have a slightly ghoulish imagination okay we like the gothic it's just a great just, it's a great adjective very ghoulish yeah we like, we like a bit of gothic we like a bit. we like a bit of in our books not in real life uh we like a bit of darkness and i just think we sort of bonded over this book and we were honestly were obsessed by it so i think you know like she'd read a bit i'd read a bit we'd read a bit together i remember i can remember exactly where where it is and all the rest of it and, uh, and we got through it. Yeah, I think I probably was aware because I was the adult yeah. and she was the child. But we still, you know, we still talk about it. We don't talk about the bad bits. We talk about the, you know, again, for me, I guess what it is for her in some ways, it's her version of that adventurous, childish, go and do stuff, you know, be slightly scared, but it's all going to be okay <coughs> in the end. We loved it. And she's, bec- she's become a very good um, dark writer. Oh, she's she? a really good writer. Oh, she, yeah. So
0: she's enjoying putting pen to paper as well? Yeah. Out, out so street. she,
1: um, uh, so much so that um, at school, I laugh again, uh, um, I, I got taken aside by her teachers going, Louise, Scarlett writes very dark stories.
0: like <laughs> in like, social services. Yeah, yeah, they're like,
1: yeah, they, you know, and I had to have a word with her and say, look, I love your dark stories, but every now and then, just to make the teachers happy, put in a happy ending. She's like, <laughs> Really? and some some we did have some uh, something i won't say what it was but something very traumatic did happen to some friends of ours so actually you know she was expressing in writing form what was what had happened so yeah so we so scarlett and i and we still you know again we were only i said i think i might put this book in she said oh, please do should we read it again so we may read and how it old again. She's 18 now. She's 18. So I love that.
0: I, but this, this, she remembers this book. It means something to her. The time that you spent together reading it yeah. means something yeah, it to her. Yeah, really it. does. And she wants you to remember that and to to celebrate that again. Yeah, and that's
1: where we so we have we have our own cinema club, me and Scarlett. The other members of our family, my husband and my daughter are not involved in it. We go to <laughs> the cinema. <laughs> exactly. I mean occasionally they join us but, you know. But, so that, so that, so, you know, you've got, I think with the, with my children, it's, it's so important to find something that you you bond over or you love together, and this for me and Scarlett was really, really key.
0: And did you read to your kids right from the beginning? Was that time that you carved out?
1: I did read to them, yeah. Why is it so important to you? I think because I was read to, I think it's such a, you know, such a privilege that I was read to that I kind of want to, wanted to pass it on, and I want... You know, for me, I find escapism in these books and, you know, going and exploring other worlds. And I just, I wanted them to have access to that. And actually, they do both read. They don't always read, but they do both read. And I love that they still do that because, you know, you can say, oh, this generation don't read or all they're doing is looking on TikTok. You know, there's a lot of that. Don't get me wrong. But they do both find solace um, in books, which is great. I remember, um, yeah, my, my parents always read to us and
0: there's two sort of memories that stick out. One was that we went through the entire Harry Potter series with my dad not realising that it was Hermione and not Hermione. Oh, <laughs> I think I did
1: that bit into listening to Stephen Fry.
0: He <laughs> just read the well, while He did all the voices well. Oh, and sometimes if dad was working, mum would try and do it. We're like, no, but you can't do the voices the same. But when mum read to us if she was ever tired she would start to drift off and as she drifted off she, she would she would go from English to Igbo which is her mother tongue so she'd be like and then Harry said <laughs> <laughs> it, would just, it would just change but but it was a really special time and all of me and my three brothers all six of us would sometimes sit we't did have a TV but we'd yeah. sit and and listen to my parents reading and it was how we finished most days, and it was really I special. did. As much
1: as I possibly could, I did do that. And again, it's that kind of moment, isn't it, where you've just got a bit of time out from everything else. Mm. And if you can find a book that you both enjoy, I tell you what. That's a winner. I mean, you've spoken openly, actually, recently about the grief that comes
0: when your children fly the nest. Have books helped with this sense of loss for you oh my gosh
1: definitely so they both went pretty much when i started having to read
0: (laughs) for the women's prize so you had something to fill the gaps. So, so i like had this is, I'd
1: have these seventy five books and now what I'm worried about is when we get to the end, so what? what? And I can tell you now, I'm so sorry,
0: Louise, but you have this real feeling of complete you're just bereft. Like, what do I, I do? Do I read a book by a man? Like can you even conceive? Yeah. Why
1: can't somebody just send me seventy five books? Do? Yeah, so that, so it has really helped. But it's so funny because they do fly the nest, and then they just rel- rant. like today. I was at home, and Scarlett just walked in. Didn't even know she was coming home. How far did she go? She—they're both at uni. Okay. So they, but once she's she's on holiday at the moment. But she'd gone she'd gone away somewhere, and then she just turned up, and I'm like, honestly, it's the most exciting thing that happened to me today. Apart from this, obviously, but um, I, you know, it's just like that. I expect she probably did it on purpose, she probably didn't tell me, so she knew I'd be going, oh my gosh, you're back, how exciting, what can I do, can we chat? I'm really annoying. Oh, can I go and have my soup in your room?
0: <laughs> it's, it's good to hear and it's good to know because I think sometimes we forget because we get so wrapped up in our own worlds. and mum really wants you home sometimes. Yeah, you know, so mum, I mum, yeah. yeah it really does. Um, and so anyone listening who's in a similar position, do make that time. I just because turn up. There's nothing like that excitement. Yeah. Um, it's time to talk about your fifth and final bookshelfy book today, oh. which is The Salt Path by Raina Wynn. This memoir follows Raina and her husband, Moth, whose terminal cancer diagnosis came just days before their business collapsed and their home was taken away with nothing to lose. They decide to embark upon walking the 630-mile southwest coastal path from Somerset to Dorset via Devon and Cornwall. It is a moving story of coming to terms with grief, the meaning of home, and the healing power of the natural world. Tell us a bit about this book. Why did you pick it? Why does it mean something to
1: you? I wrote some notes. Can I say my notes? Oh, God, please do. Uh, It's about love, loss, and landscape. I was given this book and I again we talked about it didn't we passing books on and being given books and this was given by my greatest friend. And again it's probably I probably wouldn't have picked it up because it'd be like oh it's a walk. You know? <laughs> yeah. It is a walk. It it's like the most beautiful walk by the way. And I just I just fell in love with the, with the pair of them, actually. And the South Coast and some of the path that they walk, the north north coast of Cornwall, is one of my favourite, apart from Latin America, um, my favourite places in the UK. And I love it for its drama and its rugged rocks and sea, wild seas and beautiful dark pools to swim in. And I've spent so many years going down to a particular part of North Cornwall. So she goes through that. And I just think it... It's, so much, it's a love story. For me, it's a love story. It's about the two of them, and it's about being put through the most difficult of circumstances, losing everything. And you imagine yourselves in that sort of situation where you lose everything, and you think you lose yourselves, but they don't. And they come back stronger and with this beautiful relationship. And the, I mean, her writing is just stunning and lyrical, and really, for me... I find that landscape very difficult to exp- explain to other people because it, it overwhelms me so much. I find it almost, um, when I I'm at my most favourite time of year to go down there is sort of February when it's really wild mm-hmm. and it sort of shakes me up a bit and that she does that in such a wonderful way and also the other thing that she does it in, a, in it as well is um, I'm really passionate about open water swimming. And the way it makes me feel. Completely, embracing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, invigorating. Invigorating, embracing, beautiful. Uh, I feel like I'm a mermaid. I'm clearly not. Um, <laughs> I, I've learned, actually for Fearless, I learned how to free dive. So I'm a bit more like a mermaid now. I love that she she's able to bring that to the page and just bring it to life. And it's just, it's a beautiful <laughs> journey. Um, and I haven't read her next book, actually. And I sort of don't want to, because I want to park that and just think that is such a, wonderful just it's, a, it's an ode to the landscape as well as to him as well and their relationship
0: on the subject of passing on these stories in fearless in your new book you follow these 17 trailblazing women celebrate a female endeavor in this way
1: do you know i think the salt path i probably read this mm-hmm. just before or it was certainly in my sort of way of thinking before I I decided to do Fearless. So why I decided to do it, and I don't know if you read the intro, but it was because I was fed up. I love Endeavour. I love big stories, and that's why I really was very rude about the walk. It's not just a walk. It's a beautiful walk that they do. Um, And I love the outside and I love what it can bring you and how it can change you. Anyway, so I, I, you know, I've, I've worked on BBC Breakfast for nearly 20 years and I've interviewed lots of incredible men about endeavour, about being brave, about climbing the highest mountains, about you know, swimming round the UK, whatever it is. So many Lots of incredible men. And it struck me that we were not hearing from the stories of women doing this. And I was like, OK, so is it that women are not doing this or is it what I think might be true, that we're not hearing their stories. And I did a little bit of a, you know, a, a shallow dive and was just overwhelmed by how many incredible women there are out there, you know, breaking down boundaries, smashing stereotypes, you know, climbing Everest, the youngest person to climb Everest twice is Molly Hughes, she's from from the UK, um, you know, doing extraordinary things and we, and we just weren't hearing about them. And I thought, well, I could spend my life, because I spent quite a lot of time trying to make sure that there is, you know, that... I read the first headline sometimes as opposed to just my male co presenters reading the first headline. I had a big battle over that.
0: Can you believe it? It makes it. Can you it believe it? Sense, yeah.
1: When it becomes so normalised that no one thinks about it. Okay, so what happened was that was that, so, so the first part of that journey was I noticed that my male co presenters always read the first headline, did the first interview, read the first cue, right? Every day. Said hello first. And why? And, and why? why? So, first of all, I did, before why, I said, could I maybe do it occasionally? And they're like, oh, <laughs> oh. Anyway, they, d- they did occasionally let me do it, and then other directors wouldn't let me do it, and, I was, and then I went to why. Mm-hmm. And the answer to the why was, because that's the way we've always done it. It's just how it is. So make it not how it is. Exactly. You'd think it was simple, wouldn't you? <laughs> anyway, so um, so I then did a bit of research up uh, because I knew I knew my boss at the time wasn't going to just say, Kick! you know, he just he, anyway, he needed a, a bit of facts. So I did a bit of fact checking, took notes over three months. Who read the first headline every day for three months? Guess what? Mostly the guy. Anyway, I took that to him, and we changed it. But what I was most annoyed was, you know, several years later, I started noticing that the same thing, that thing about the women not being able to do this their stories not being told was happening with my favourite part of the programme my favourite part of the programme was those all those adventurous stories of brave intrepid people and rather than ask why I just thought let's just cut to the tell their stories because you could spend you know I could write a whole dissertation on the why and I did that when I, when I was at university I went to Spain and did a dissertation on uh, the portrayal of women in the media in Spain and things have changed enormously since then but actually you know I'd rather go out there and celebrate these stories, and that's what I did. Went and go, met amazing women and did crazy things. What sort of crazy things? What sort of women? <laughs> just a couple. Just, just, just a one. couple. Just uh, a couple. We'll go. We'll go. Yeah. So one crazy thing. So one. One of them is called Kath Pendleton, and she's called the Murtha Mermaid, and she is a, an ice swimmer, and she swam the most southernmost mile in the Antarctic. So she swam a mile where there were orcas swimming, and there were leopard se- leopards seals feasting on I don't know what not her um, but anyway she's an incredible woman and um, people, she would say look I don't look like an athlete but she's an incredible athlete if I went in that water I would have to, I would probably be hypothermic in two minutes, she's there for three 35 minutes we went free diving under ice in Finland because why wouldn't you <laughs> she, I phoned her up and said Kath I really want you to read my book what should we do, let's go free diving under ice, in the dark in Finland, I'd ask the question why
0: again. Oh, why?
1: Because why not? Why not? Why not? Um, so that so she's amazing. There's another. They're all they're all amazing. And uh, having just done the audible, it's really interesting to sort of read them all back to back. They're all got so many different things to say. Uh, one of them is Zee Alima, and she is she lives in London. She is black Muslim. She wears a hijab. She works for the NHS. Was a neonatal nurse and she wants to be the first black muslim woman to play rugby for england and she will mm-hmm. and if she isn't somebody will because of her and it's for me it's about representation and for her, you know for her her story is like i want to do this so other people who look like me who might be of the same religion think that they can do it too she for example here you know she would she would be voted woman of the match she'd go into a bar afterwards she doesn't drink does she but would still keep turning up even though there are all those different things which might have dissuaded her from doing it so she's amazing there's a lot there's so many of them and they're all the one thing the key is key to all of them I think is that they are all incredibly modest they don't you know that and that's why it needs to be done for them I need to go look these are amazing women read about them because they you know not out there going I've just become the first person to blah de blah they're just getting on with their lives doing incredible stuff and not Necessarily shouting about it.
0: Well, we're not really conditioned to shout about yeah. it as so women, we need are to, we? Yeah,
1: so we need to do the We shouting. need to do it for
0: one another. Yeah. So that's what it's a big shout. It's a big shout. And you know, y- yourself having <laughs> moved into triathlons, what is it about endurance and challenging yourself that you love so much that you're so fascinated about? Clearly,
1: that's a good question right now because. This will go, I think, I will have hopefully, by the time this podcast goes out, have done the London Marathon. Right now, I'm wondering about all those questions. <laughs> Why would I? It's so hard. You're going to do it. Do you think? You're going to do it. <laughs> I'm doing it with Mia, who's my 21-year-old. Oh. So, yeah, hopefully we will do it. Um, I just think, for me, it was, at the time when I started, it was a lot about taking control, actually, because... You know, we talked a little bit about not reading the headlines. You know, there were a lot of things that I was fighting against while I was doing my job. And not only that, but that relentless bad news all the time, every day. So I think for me, exercise became a safe space away from all of that. Then I did some competing and that was brilliant and I loved it. And I, you know, I, I do myself down here. I did, I did, I competed for my age group in World and European Championships, which is Seems a little bit crazy, even though I've done it. And then I sort of move from that into just being outside and being like they are in this book, in The Salt Path, just a small part of our incredible world and really insignificant. That's how I like to feel. (laughs) And (laughs) challenging myself and challenging myself and knowing that I'm gonna have to get over this mountain or these sand dunes and they're just my two feet and we're just gonna have to do this. And sometimes that feels really hard and really dark and all the rest of it, but it gives me so much power in other parts of my life, where I just think, yeah, this is hard, but I've done hard things, so let's just get on and do it. It puts a lot of things in perspective, doesn't it? When you feel, it's almost like at once you feel so small and also so big. Yeah, small is is sort of good, but yeah, the world is big and beautiful, Mm -hmm. and and we're just a very small and really. it sounds weird, doesn't it? That I'm small and insignificant makes me feel better. It makes me feel better. So, yeah, so that I've, I've loved, it. and the more outside the better. Yeah, so at the moment, it's the, I'm focusing on the marathon. I don't quite know. I've got a few ideas. Something will come up. Something else will come up.
0: Well, in the meantime,
1: uh, I have one
0: more question to ask you. And I think it's the toughest. If you could have just one book oh my from your list as a favourite, Louise, which would it
1: be and why? I think it would be the House of Spirits. And it, I think it would have to be in Spanish. Because I, it would certainly tax my mind. I def, would I be allowed a dictionary as well? Of course you can. Okay, good. <laughs> that would be really helpful. i am giving you two
0: books, but one of them is the dictionary. <laughs> it's the dictionary.
1: I think I'd take that because I think it's got so many levels. I think it's, it'll remind me of when I had a big change in my life, when I decided that I was no longer going to be a waster. I was going to get up and do something with my life. And I think it reminded me of incredible times. I mean, if I could have my life again, I'd probably take the whole family and go and live in Latin America, if we could, in Chile. So yeah, I think it would be that. And I, That's really surprised me, actually. I wouldn't it's have funny, said that earlier. When you
0: put on the spot, sometimes, having just ha- you yeah. told these stories, relived these moments, you think, actually, that was formative. It's the book, but it's also the time that I read that book. And it sounds like that is a book that shaped you. Yeah, it, it made did. You.
1: It absolutely did and I going to go and finish it off in the bath? Look, I love okay. how crinkly can, can it is. you see where I've got <laughs> you? Yeah. Do you read in the
0: bath? I do, yeah. Oh, I am a terrible with habits. I write in them, turn the do page, down, read in the bath, everything. But it means that they're loved.
1: Yeah, it's beautifully loved. I'm going to have to find it. I'm going to have to source a Spanish copy. Well, Louise, I have loved having you. Honestly, like just the best. It's I... so lovely to meet somebody else who spent a year in Latin America <laughs> and loved it.
0: It doesn't happen all the time, but I feel like you've taken us on some real journeys, uh, some real gear changes and just some brilliant books that we can go away and press into the hands of others as well. Like you said, there's something really special about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm in mean, the salt path again. I think it, w- it was a close choice between that and the house. Wait, well, you're
0: spirits. adding another book to i the, like, the I can see what you're doing. I'm just going to see what you're doing. <laughs> no, it's a little <laughs> book, it's fine. It's OK for you. I will allow it. Thank you so much, Louise. And thank you as well to our wonderful audience here at Bailey's HQ. Give yourselves a whoop. <laughs> I'm Vic Hope, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.